Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday night. Truth is, I'm half asleep and half awake, but I want to get this done. I'm trying to get back on my schedule to do the Parsha. And this week is Parsha's Bullock. And the truth is, I have a an analysis of the whole Bamidbar. Bullock is just one piece of it. And here it is. To me, what's very interesting happens in Bamidbar is that you find Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest person, confronted with a series of challenges and failing to be able to deal with those challenges on each occasion. Uh, I repeat, failing to be able to deal with those challenges on this occasion. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, getting divine intervention. Uh, it's what we call Shkacha uh, As I said earlier, the medieval authorities say that the average person doesn't get Ashkacha Pratis, uh, but the Kali Yisrael does. But individual great people, certainly Moshe Rabbeinu, gets uh, divine intervention in their lives. In each case, Moshe fails, finds himself failing to meet a challenge, and God intervenes. This is quite, quite remarkable. I'm not sure the meaning of the pattern, but I'm just calling attention tonight in this little podcast on the pattern. And I just made a list. I usually don't even do this. Off the top of my head, thinking about the stories in my midbar, and I can list five up to our parashah. One, Lashon Hara. Two, Misoninim. Three, Korach. Four, Bilam. Five, the Benos Mov. Now in order. You find... Earlier in uh, Midbar, that uh, the brother and sister, Aaron and Moshe, say Loshan about Moshe. They undermine him. Right? They're criticizing Moshe. What exactly means it's not clear. You know, famous Chazal's only about the wife. It's not clear, but something. They were, they were, they were attacking or criticizing um, the basic stature of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's, he's nothing unique, which are rather devastating. And uh, could have led to really bad consequences. And Moshe doesn't answer back. You know, they say bad things about him, and he doesn't uh, scream back at them, which is what you're supposed to do when somebody says, Well, not against you. But Moshe not good at that. And the way the Torah says it is, Ish Moshe Onav Mod, Mikol Adam. He's a big Onav. So, you know, you can read that as a big Sidkus. You know, he's very humble. Or you can say, he wasn't capable of answering back, you know, in the rough and tumble of politics, and Moshe Rabbeinu was in politics, whether you like it or not, you have to uh, punch back. You have to be able to dish it out as well as take it. And he should have said to Miriam and Aaron, oh, you're criticizing me? Well, what about this and this and that? Reprove them. Lishem Shemayim, of course. And, uh, and shut them up. And believe me, he would have done them a favor. Why do I say that? He couldn't do it. If he is being criticized and said Lashon Arbat and cannot respond for one reason or another, then his authority as the leader of Jewish people smack in the middle of the desert is undermined. And that'll be fatal. So Aaron and Miriam apparently made a huge mistake, which is evident from the story, in attacking the character and the uh, leadership of Moshe because the results would be devastating 
And Taka, what happened? She's hit with leprosy. Uh, as we all know the story. So what does that mean? Look, I'm a regular person. You're a regular person. People say Lashon about me. People say Lashon about you. Now, we would like to be able to have a situation where somebody says, just make something up. Somebody says, cats is stealing money. And then that person gets hit smack with leprosy. Then everybody sees the cat is not stealing money. He was punished for single shahara. So you have physical proof on the body of the inscribed on the body of the perpetrator, as Foucault puts it. And is evident then the story wasn't true. So then B says, I guess I guess he didn't steal the money. Because Hashem struck the person and said the cat stole the money. So you see it's not true. That's what happened with Moshe Benu. They're criticizing Moshe's type of nevuah, because they say he's not unique, he's not the only one, and God comes down, as we all know the story, and says Moshe is unique, and bug off, and he hits uh, Miriam uh, demonstrably with leprosy for a week, and even when Moshe prays for her, God says, no, she's got to stay for a week. The meaning of the story, as I understand it, is, it's not a personal thing, that I know you forgive your sister, Moshe was a big sodic and all that, he was, but uh, Hashem's like this. I need a public demonstration that if you talk against Moshe and say Loshanar, you get hit with a terrible punishment. So she has to be the object lesson. And the whole people waited for her and they learned the, the, learned the lesson, or at least they're supposed to. So what happened? Moshe couldn't deal with it himself. And then Hashkacha Pratis kicked and God hit it with a miracle. Same thing again with the Masonic. The people are complaining and butching all the time about the food. Moshe is dealing with 600,000 high maintenance Jews, as they call it. You know, like the food, the tofu in the morning, tofu in the afternoon, tofu in the evening, sick and tired of this stuff. We're, we're vaulted, right? We're grossed out by looking at the mon. And I know the Gemara says that the mon tastes like whatever you want, but first of all, it don't sound like it, at least from the story, when they say we can't stand eating this stuff, this stinking bread, this lousy bread. Doesn't sound like it tastes whatever you want. Alternatively, I could be wrong, and maybe it tastes like whatever you want, but you want to know something, eat a piece of bread, and it tastes like a steak. You don't feel like you're eating a steak. It's weird. You know what I'm saying? Eat a piece of bread, or a, a tofu, whatever it was, and it tastes like, you know, uh, you know, lamb chops, but it isn't. So it's, it's, you feel we- weird. Food is supposed to look like it. You know what I'm saying? And so the result is that... Um, drove Moshe crazy. He said to God, I can't handle it anymore. I kill me. Remember, Hanukhi Orisi, someone said, And what Taka happens over there? If you read this story in the end, by the time the story's over, the people who complained and borching about the food were killed. Because this is, I'll send quail, God says, and it'll come through their nose, meaning they'll eat plenty of food. And then I'll hit Habasar Odeno Bain Shinehem. Uh, they were killed in a plague. And so again, you see Moshe couldn't quiet him down. Now, if Moshe had been a, a different type of leader, a more assertive type of leader or something like that, of a certain sort, then Moshe would say, you shut up about the food, you're stuck here in the desert, if you don't keep your mouth shut, I'll throw you out of here, be on your own in the desert, see how you like that, or I'll leave, and see you guys get along without them. I don't know, he could have said something back. Or he could have told him, you know, uh, you're all, um, you know, uh, food crazy. I don't know. He'd have to think of some argument to hit him back with if it would have been a sharp answerer. But Moshe was not a rhetoric guy. Rhetoric, as I said in the other podcast, means you know how to answer somebody back, stark, and stuck them back. 
and uh, and if I'm the type of person that you say something about me, I say something double about you, you're afraid to mess with me. Those are the people we're all afraid to deal with because you say one thing, they hit you with ten times as hard. And Moshe wasn't built that way. And therefore God had to intervene once again with a divine plague on the Mitzvahim, on the people with the food. And so you see a pattern repeated twice. There's some a challenge to Moshe's leadership. He can't deal with it. Successfully, doesn't know how. And God has to intervene. The story of Korach obviously fits in that pattern. Korach says Moshe's a crook. Who knows what he said, you know? By the time of Silver Rashi says the people accused Moshe of uh, committing adultery with other people's wives and, uh, and stealing money and, you know, all the making up lies that what God told him, uh, the whole nine yards. And you see from the story of Korach, Moshe doesn't know what to answer. He, he can only play dumb defense. I didn't take what they said I took. You know, that's a terrible way to be. Ask a lawyer. If, if I start accusing you of something and all you say is, this is not true, and what you say about me here is also not true, and this is a lie, well, I mean, you play defense. Once, once, once you play defense, you lost. The only good defense is offense. You say this about me, I say that about you, you say I'm a crook, I'll tell you what I found out about you on the internet, you phony, you pervert, you this, that, and the other, and here's what your brother did, and your mother did, and your father did, and all the rest. And then if you, I do that, then you're afraid to come back to me. You know, you're afraid to start it with me in the first place. And Moshe can't deal with, with, with Korach. And like I mentioned last week in the podcast, or two weeks ago, whatever it was, by the time it's over, Korach has won. Uh, so much so, that Moshe despairs of being able to out-argue Korach. He despairs about being able to out-debate Korach. And instead, he has to call himself on a divine intervention, and the ground swallows up and eats them all. Uh, what does that mean? He wasn't able to deal with the challenge on his own. In this week's Parshish, Mom, it's the same thing. We have two fascinating incidents. One is Bilam. And what's the story of Bilam? The guy has some power. The one you bless stays blessed. The one you curse stays cursed. Now, you know, many of the Farshim are trying to figure out who is this guy, Bilam. And there are certainly those traditions that assigned him he was a, some sort of a, a mystic, a magician, or something like that, and uh, was able to cast spells. So when it says he could bless or curse, he had some voodoo uh, type power or kochas uh, whatever However, you want to learn it, that he had that that power to do it. But I don't like to learn it that way. I mean, I'm aware of those in, interpretations, but I think to us sitting here today, it's more useful to think of Bilam playing pashup shot. Rhetoric and words is unbelievably powerful. They used to say, sticks and stones will break my bones, and neighbors will never hurt me. That's a big lie. Take a kid in 5th grade, 8th grade, 10th grade, and people start calling them names. The kid will never get over it, boy or girl, and they'll be ruined for life. It's a bullying, as we call today. Don't we have situations in America all the time where kids are murdering them, I mean, committing suicide, because the other ones are bullying them on the Facebook and all these other sorts of things? You, you, you see it like I do. No one laid a hand on him. No one laid a hand on her. But verbally, they did. It was enough to drive him crazy. Billam was a master of words. When you put the spin out there on somebody, you're a super PR agent, and the one you build up as righteous, the whole world believes to be righteous, and the one you paint in negative forms ends up looking bad. Billam could have said all kinds of things. But listen, I mean, this is the story of the Jewish people throughout their history. Let me just give you one example. We are not good at self-defending against our anti-Semites. Or else, why do still people believe in the blood libel? 
I look in the uh, paper today, some Egyptian guy said the Jews all do the blood libel, but you know, they do it with their own blood. I don't know, something like that. Where do you get this junk from? The answer is, Asher Tavark, Yivark, Asher Tavar, you are. Somebody put that out there long ago, and it sticks. And there's nothing you can do to get rid of it. And the Bilam had this unbelievable power, and the proof that I'm right is, it, once again, it required divine intervention to shut the guy up. That's the story, of course, of, Bal- of Bilam. That, you know, as I show you, I see so I can't say anything except what God puts in my mouth. Why didn't Hashem go like this? Say what you want, you doofus. Say, you know, criticize Jews all you want. It's not going to come true. You don't have any power. In other words, sticks and stones will break my bones and they will never hurt me. You want to curse the Jews? Curse the Jews. Why did Hashem intervene? Shema mina, you see that if Bilaam's rhetoric would have been able to be pronounced, it would have an impact, it would have an effect. People would say, indeed, oh, look at the Jews, they're this. No, he would successfully demonize the Jewish people. And once you get that, you can't get rid of it. You understand? And so, in order to prevent that from happening, it's, to me, it's a fascinating story. In order to prevent this verbal demonization from taking place, it was necessary for God to uh, shut him up. And this is mentioned several times in the Torah, you know. I think in the half Torah today in Micha and elsewhere, that, you know, that's somewhere in Dvar. Do not forget the, the uh, kindness that God showed you that he took Bilam by Yafokas, a Kolabrok, and he turned the curse into blessing, meaning he wouldn't allow Bilam to say what he wanted to say. He compelled him to say nice things. I repeat, he compelled Bilam to say, Ma Yako, Israel. He didn't want to say it. He wanted to say, Ma Ro, Mishkanesach Yako, or Ma Stupid Mishkanesach. You know, he wanted to say bad things about the Jews. I'm not going with the Gemara with that God. I'm going with the Pashim Shot. The way the story is. If it requires God himself, to uh, actively intervene as Ashkocha Pratis. Now, it's not surprising because we certainly believe Ashkocha Pratis for the Jewish people as a people. It's a fundamental basis of who we are. As a matter of fact, if you didn't believe in Ashkocha Pratis for the Jewish people, we'd all get depressed with what we read in the paper today, right? Every day. The world is so full of anti Semitism, so full of anti Israel sentiment, it's spreading to America. You got all this junk in the Congress. I didn't even follow the stories now. I've been at a commission since whenever I go out of town, when I, I mean when I go to Europe or someplace like that, I don't tune into the news uh, because I'm focused on the job that I have over there. And I discovered long ago, you know, if you don't read the paper, the world goes on without you. Shock, shock. You know, if you don't know what's happening, it happens anyway. And uh, But I know Trump is in some battle with uh, the Arab congresswoman and so forth, you know told her to go home, whatever. Point is, point is, words do matter. Words do matter. And the politicians, they'll tell you right now, if you put out a spin against some politician, it'll stick. <coughs> Excuse me. It'll stick, and the other person won't be able to get rid of it. And I should work, you work. I should tell you are. Donald Trump has a little bit of his power. I'll prove it to you. He's called her Pocahontas, and now she can't get rid of it. <laughs> you understand? Not that I'm in favor of... Uh, What's her name? Elizabeth Warren. Not that I'm in favor, but I'm just telling you. He made the name stick. So wherever she goes, she's going to be Pocahontas. Uh, how do he do it? So, uh, Bilm has his power in an awesome way. And if Hashem has to, uh, has to intervene. Moshe can't. Now, this is a little bit different. Moshe didn't know. Uh, it's a remarkable parsha we have today. The Jewish people are in a valley. Some guy named Bilm is standing all the way top, 
a yeshima, you know, all the way at the top of a mountain. They can't see him. And the drama is taking place out, out of the earshot and out of the, the um, uh, knowledge even of the emotion of the Jews. Let me put it to you this way. When is Parshish Bilam included in the Chamisha Chumshitar? When did that happen? The answer is, first of all, remember one thing. The story of Bilam happens shortly before the death of Moshe. Because in Parshish Chukas is the great break. I didn't have time to speak about this last week because I was out of town. But in Parshish Chukas, until Chukas, let's put it this way, from the beginning of Shmos to Chukas is one continuous narrative. Particularly once you get to the Yitzis Mitzrayim. After that, all the events that take over the rest of Shmos, Vayikra, and first part of Bamidbar take place uh, within a year or two after the departure of the Jews from Egypt. And then, next thing you know, Miriam dies. Meaning, then it's 38 years later. So, after Chukas, it's already the last year of Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, Miriam dies, Aaron dies, and eventually Moshe, of course, does. But in between that time comes all these stories that we have at the end of Bamidbar. So, what does that mean, my friends? The story of Balak and Bilam is taking place Three months, four months, something like that, before the death of Moshe Rabbeinu. Consider. So the Jews have no idea, Moshe has no idea that God is intervening and blocking this guy and shutting him up. I Meaning he doesn't know the he doesn't know the oracles pronounced by by Bilam. He doesn't know Bilam said, all that stuff. He not how would Moshe know that? Now comes the funny part. Um a month or two go by, or three. And then Moshe's dying. I mean, you know, meaning the last days of Moshe. And God says, Write down the Torah. And he says, Tell the story of Jesus and Shreim. And Moshe says, Okay. And then he said, Write all the stories about uh, the Halachas and Vayikra with the Karbonas and the Tumah and Tyre and so forth. And Moshe says, Okay. And now write something called Vamidbar Moshe and talk about, I don't know, counting of the tribes and the, uh, you know, the flags and of the tribes and all that, Moshe says, okay. And now tell the story of uh, the Meraglim. And then the story of Korach. And Moshe says, okay, I follow that. And then Hashem, and then says, talk about the uh, the, the the red heifer, the egg, egg, uh, Paraduma. And Moshe says, okay. And then, <laughs> comes like this. And he says, now tell the story of Bilam. And repeat after me. Vayar Balak ben Sipar, you know, write it all out. And Moshe says, huh? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? And Hashem said, well, something happened behind your back, you didn't even know about it. This guy, Bilam, was summoned by Bullock, and he was about to curse you, and I intervened and stopped it. Moshe must have said, wow, I didn't know this. The Jewish people said, wow, we didn't know this. How would they? So the character of Parshish uh, Bullock is unique in that regard, because it's a story the Jewish people is happening about them, but they're not actors in the uh, in the story. They're passive. There are people Bilam is trying to uh, act upon by by uh, cursing. <clears throat> you know what? You all know what I'm saying. <coughs> it's just very interesting to me, therefore, that you find Parshat Bilam over here, and obviously, being unaware of what Bilam is doing, Moshe cannot intervene to to block him. And once again, you see Hashgacha Pratis. So the same thing happened in round one, round two, round three, and round four. And finally, you have at the end of the parsha. Uh, the story of the Benos Moav. By the way, there's more to it than what I'm saying. Every story they tell you in the Torah is an existential story, as I always argue. And that means that the thing is always there. There's always going to be a problem with Meraglim. That's who the Jewish people are. We're always going to have people who, who mean mouth Israel. Just get over it. It's going to be there. 
There are always going to be misonim. Oh my goodness, don't we know that? There are always going to be people kibbers so tired, but there are always people complaining about the food, complaining about this. Judaism doesn't work for them. The food doesn't work for them. You know, the, the accommodations don't work for them. Uh, they're always birching. That's just part of who Kal Yisrael is. There will always be problems with Korach types. Boy, we know that. They're running around all over the place, right? You, you understand what I'm saying? They're telling you a specific story, but the story is of a nature that it represents. It is a true story. It represents something much larger than the story, but rather a cyclical reality that again and again reasserts itself in Jewish history. <coughs> so, you and I today, and the state of Israel, suffering from uh, Bilaam. Uh, we got people out there who are cursing us, putting out the spin, and... Uh, am I right or am I wrong? Most kids in the college and, and so forth, Jewish, are joining the BDS and worse because they believe the negative rhetoric that's said about the Jewish people in Israel. Today, Bilaam is firing away and God is not intervening as he did once to shut them up. It's actually very interesting to me in that regard. It should be interesting to you because the Arabs can't beat Israel on the battlefield. We've seen that in several wars. But they are beating them in the information war. They are beating them in the war for hearts and minds. They are beating them in the war for rhetoric. Because you see all the Western media and Kavachum or the other media are giving always the Arab spin. Do you remember not long ago, uh, Trump's daughter went to Israel to uh, dedicate the um, uh, uh, embassy. And the Arabs on purpose and Hamas sent people to the border so that the Israeli army would shoot at them. Well, it's obvious. The whole thing is a publicity stunt because they said we're sending a border to be shot at. But the press went along with it, didn't they? All the press, they said, oh, the Israelis are shooting people and civilians are being killed and it's terrible and wounded. Wait a minute, why don't you scream at the Hamas for sending these people to cause incidents which will automatically cause to be fired upon? You are today in the world. Israel is the one that's cursed and the Arabs are the ones that's blessed. It's, it's just a remarkable manifestation of what you find in Parshish Balak. I'll, I'll show you another example of the times. Look at Bibi, Netanyahu. The guy's a good speaker. He comes and gives eloquent, eloquent speech in, in Congress, eloquent speech in the United Nations, eloquent in, interviews on the, the TV shows and so forth. Nobody listens. He makes the case for Israel, gets no traction. All the media makes fa 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 with him, and he gets and, and he gets no attention. You know, he's like Rodney Dangerfield. You know, he he speaks away and gets no respect, even though the points he makes are good points. On the face of it, one day someone will read one of his speeches and will say, oh, the guy was a good speaker. But he had no traction. This is the hand of God. Uh, sometimes, this is what you see in Bilaam. Sometimes it's a moment where divine intervention makes it that, that you get traction for your words, and sometimes not. It reminds me of Winston Churchill back in the 30s. You know, before he became prime minister, before 1939, Churchill make all these eloquent speeches, and people say, ah, shut up. You know, don't tell me about Hitler in the next war. We don't want to hear about it. You're a warmonger. You're an idiot. You're over the hill. You cause a lot of trouble in the Gallipoli. And therefore, we're not interested in anything you have to say. On the other hand, once he became prime minister, we all know he gave these amazing speeches. Just as amazing as the speeches he gave before, but then he got traction. Everybody said, wow, you're the most best speaker ever. So we see the Billum phenomenon as a cyclical reality. That's my argument today. And it's one that should stick with us. Finally, you have the other story, with devastating effect of the Shekses. You have the Benos Moav. Here's Moshe Rabbeinu uh, in the 40th year of his life. Again, the Benos Moav story, where the soldiers, the Jewish boys, fell for the girls. Boom, like that. 
went down like a deck of cards. Right? They, they, they settled down at a certain place. These girls showed up, and that was it. All the, the, the cholesterol started being mezana with the benos mov. How can you do that? These are guys from Punavish. These are guys from Lakewood. What do I mean? They were in the desert with Moshe. Who are the young guys that 40 years later in the desert? They grew up under Moshe Amenu. They grew up under the Anani Akalot. They grew up uh, totally saturated in Torah, living on Mon and on the Bayer Miriam, having all this Kedusha, etc., etc. It don't mean nothing. Because the minute a boy sees girl, a boy's going to be a boy, a girl's going to be a girl. That's what the Torah is telling you today, right? You can't, a dog will be a dog and a cat will be a cat. You can't change the world. You can't change the human race. God made people. They, this is why the firm community is so hyper when being puritanical. Uh, you know, something well, you're going too far. It can't be a picture of a woman anywhere. Remember, they cut Hillary Clinton out and all that. But, and, and maybe we do it in clumsy ways. And maybe we do it in inelegant ways. But when we see such things, we're trying to say, listen, we're struggling as a Jewish people today with the phenomenon of Benos Mov. And uh, there's no defense against it. You know what And it's a reality. Anybody who knows anything about college will tell you, number one problem is Benos Mov. All the kids go down like a, you know, a one, two, three. They meet a girl from uh, another faith or another uh, background, and the, the, the boy's hooked, and vice versa. A Jewish girl meets a, a Gentile guy. It, it happens. It's happening right and left. In America, it's like a plague. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It sounds like a broken record. Uh, but the, the, the point, and, and by the way, it goes both ways. A boy to girl, girl to boy. Uh, yeah, but in Israel, too, in Israel, it's interesting. You don't find, as far as I'm aware, anyway, uh, Israeli guys chasing Arab girls. But you do find Israeli girls running around with Arab guys. There are organizations now to try to rescue, you know, because the Arabs are very good sweet talkers and very charming if they want to be, and the Jewish girls fall for them. Like the, they're opposite of today's parashah, you know, like a house of cards. And next thing you know, this Jewish girl's married to this Arab, and she's stuck in some Arab village. And then the other shoe drops, and then she's in a hell situation. And that's why these organizations raise money to come and do these uh, rescue operations to get the Jewish girl the heck out of there. It's uh, it's a story to be no smoke. And not only college. Let's say the guy goes... I mean, this is the reason why... It's a logical reason. This is the reason why parents don't want their kids to go to regular college. That's why they created YU. That's why you have these Near Israel programs, you know what I mean, or other yeshiva programs. You can get the education without going through the social experience. Theoretically, a university and a college, from the secular perspective, is supposed to be about living in a different community, going away from your family. That is the point of a college, to become collegial. And to, on the contrary, to have roommates that are from a different faith and a different background, a different everything. Well, it sounds good in some theory. I mean, it doesn't even sound good, but if it's, let's say it sounds good in theory. In reality, what happens most of the time is the boy... Goes, uh, uh, you know, ding, and uh, he's in love with the girl. He's running within those. He's gone, and the twelve years of a day school don't mean anything. Happens over and over again. And even if you get through college and all the rest of it, you got the workplace. I'm sure many of the people who are listening to this podcast live in the real world. Live in the real wor- workplace. Uh, whether you like it or not, you have the the benosimov is a fact. You know, you hear about, I mean, we, 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 this is a sociological reality 
one of the dangers of guys being out there in the workplace, and girls also, I suppose. Uh, it is what it is. And Moshe Rabbeinu cannot do anything about it. He's helpless in the situation, just like he was helpless to respond against the other things I talked about before, the Lashon Hara, the Misonim, the Karach, and all the rest of it. Because Moshe's, Moshe's standing there uh, helpless. The Chazal even talk about the fact that Moshe was helpless over here and condemn him. And, excuse me, they even say, I remember I saw this in Medr somewhere in Bamidbar. They say, this is the reason why Moshe is condemned to be buried opposite a Moabite church. Because it says uh, they buried him Bagai in a, in, in a valley, Mul Beis Paor, opposite a church of the God of Paor. And you know what they say, they make all over the idol, which means the guys fell for the girls and did all kind of disgusting and weird things that ordinarily wouldn't, you wouldn't think as a civilized person would do. When it comes to boy and girl, no questions about it. You understand? Uh, chemistry is chemistry, and it triumphs over everything. And even if the girl says, I want you to make over all my God, or whatever it is, or join me in doing this, that, the other, something you wouldn't let you say, I can't do it. But if it's a girl, you'll do it, or vice versa. If it's a Jewish girl and a guy, she'll do it. Whatever the fashion of the moment is, whatever they're worshiping, that's what you go for, because that's how the hormones dictate the situation. Uh, it's remarkable. And so what is the result? What is the result? Moshe is helpless. Look, I mean, it's ultimate helpless, because Zimri ben Solo takes the girl, as we all know, and he says to Moshe, is this okay? If my wife's not okay? I mean, think of the grub of Jung we're talking about over here. He takes this shiks and he said, just imagine someone would go to Rosh Hashim today, say, here's my non-Jewish girlfriend. Is this okay? What's your problem with it? And what about your wife? Your wife's also a shiks, he said to Moshe. And Moshe was helpless to answer. This is the story. And it takes a zealot, like, like uh, what's it in Pinchas, to go and kill him and, uh, and, and, and restore, you know, order through... Uh, it's very non-PC today, which is uh, direct violent action. If not for a Pinchas, God says at the beginning of next week's parasha, I was going to wipe out the whole Jewish people. Pinchas ben Lozer ben Akrein, hey shivetz chamosim al b'nei Yisrael, v'lo chilisid b'nei Yisrael b'kinosi. And I did not end up destroying the Jewish people as I was about to do, God says. Not me, Hashem says it. Uh, but because Pinchas put an end to it with this violent act, you see, it's not a time for talking and say, let's be reasonable. And let's debate this. And let's look at both sides of the street. And what's Taka wrong with intermarriage? I don't know. Pinchas just killed him, as we all know the story. So uh, that's not very nice uh, from a modern perspective. Why did you resort to violence? Why didn't you resort to reason? And anyway, why don't you give everybody freedom to do whatever they want? Listen, if you're a conservative or modern orthodox show, you're going to have trouble with the Pinchas story. Because you end up saying, well, we do not approve of this today, but, you know, maybe, the, uh, you know, blah, 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 but maybe Pinchas did it this way, that way. There is a tradition among the Mepharshim, interestingly, maybe I should do this next week, uh, trying to, uh, what's the right word, uh, narrow the case of Pinchas to say it's highly unusual, it doesn't really serve as a precedent. I remember Nachshoni, you look at Nachshoni, he has a, uh, uh, an article to that effect. Uh, I spoke about this today in a class I gave, actually. Uh, you look in there, you see all these nice Hasidic interpretations and others. Eh, Pechus, I mean, the story of Pechus is only very unique. It doesn't apply nowadays, and you have to be this way and that way. But the Pashim shot is like this. Pechus says, Moshe can't handle it. Somebody's going to handle it. And uh, I'm going to be the one that does it. 
And God, again, is intervening because God, I mean, here God doesn't intervene to kill the, the, the um, fornicators, although he's about to. It says, if not from Pinchas, Kilisi's been a so we can say, I would have killed them all. So God was about to intervene to stop this. Uh, but uh, God intervenes to say, don't you dare lay a hand on Pinchas for killing this prince of Shimon. Nobody touches Pinchas. They touch Pinchas, they deal with me, Hashem. And uh, that's pretty direct intervention. So what do you see over here? A pattern. <coughs> and maybe there are other cases. I didn't give that much thought to it. Could be other cases, but maybe they fit this also. Which is very interesting. I'm giving you something to think about. I'm giving you something to discuss intelligently on Shabbos. What's the story of give me a whole, a whole bunch of stories in, in Bamidbar in which Moshe faces these major challenges. He can't handle it. But on the other hand, God intervenes on his behalf. Uh, why didn't Hashem make a person who would be able to intervene on by himself? Why didn't Moshe give? Why didn't Why didn't Hashem make Moshe a uh, I don't know you know a rough and tough uh, debater? or uh, a cruel leader that wouldn't tolerate dissent. I don't know, something like that. Uh, instead, he put the person in charge, on of me, call on him, but God is always prepared to take direct action to suppress any attempt to undermine Moshe. It's a very interesting model. You know, If this wasn't a true story, then it would have been written different. Moshe would have been tall, dark, and handsome, vigorous, and uh, eloquent, and he would have been able to respond to all challenges. But instead, it's a real story. But a guy who was a kavad pep was 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 not able to speak well, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, suffered as a result of it. Although in each case, uh, Hashem backs up his uh, his appointee. Moshe never wanted the job, as we all know. Hashem said, "I'm forcing you to take the job, but I will back you up." And this you learn if you appoint somebody to something or other, you, you better back them up. Now, otherwise, what kind of employer are you? Anyway, I think this is a very fascinating pattern. I'm not 100% sure what to do with it, but maybe you can think about what to do with it. I'll give you a job for Shabbos. Have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.